Welcome to Super Exploitation and Resistance. And today we're bringing you dispatches from elections in Latin America. On today's program, we'll have Michelle Munjonatu, who was recently in Nicaragua, Raul Burbano, who was recently in Venezuela, and Terry Matson, who is actually in Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Honduras, where I'm presently located. And we're going to be talking about elections in Latin America, what it means for the region, what do the results mean in terms of U.S. and Latin America relations. First of all, to begin, Michelle, Raul, Terry, I'm going to share a little bit of a personal anecdote of my experience here in Honduras. I first came to this country in 2009, actually together with Raul, shortly after the coup d'etat that ousted Manuel Zelaya from power. And I remember the motivations that we had when we decided to come to this country. We were all very scared about the kind of precedent that a coup in the region, once again, in the 21st century would mean. It was a very frightening time. And we thought that we should at least do everything possible to try to intervene and stop this coup from being consolidated. Obviously, we know what happened. We unfortunately saw that the coup was consolidated despite valiant efforts by the resistance on the streets and the international solidarity movement. And of course, the role of U.S. imperialism was critical in consolidating that coup. And what we had as a result was 12 brutal years of rule by the National Party dictatorship, effectively, because this was a regime that lacked any kind of legitimacy as a result of, first of all, being installed in fraudulent elections shortly after the coup d'etat, barely five months later. Obviously, there were in conditions. And then the election of Juan Orlando Hernandez under very questionable results, but even more suspiciously, his re-election in 2017, that even the Organization of American States declared as being not free and fair. Now, when the OAS is calling a U.S. ally elections not being free and fair, I think it tells you how bad the situation was. So to be here now in 2021 to accompany the Libre Party founded in the aftermath of the coup and all of the social movements of everything that they've gone through, you know, we're talking about, you know, the fights against the extractive projects, the fights against the sedes, the medicine that was falsely given to Honduran patients, all of the situations that we know that this narco government, and when I say narco government, because I think there are very credible and serious allegations against Juan Orlando Hernandez, we know that his brother was convicted of being a narco trafficker. That valiant effort to, to, to what it took to actually defeat the coup, it was incredibly inspiring. You know, what this means for the country is that it can now forge a new democratic era. And that's pretty significant because precisely what we were worried about happening in 2009, happening and being the coup being consolidated. Now there's an opportunity for all of those brave social movements that have been resisting for more than a decade to be able to work in a space that is safer, more flexible, has the opportunity to actually directly dialogue with the government. I do think it represents an incredible opportunity. And personally, it really meant a lot to me to be able to be a part of that, to kind of to be there in both moments and support the Honduran working class and the Honduran social movement. So I wanted to share that little anecdote. And I wanted to ask each one of you if you could also share an anecdote of your experience in your respective countries and, and what you were doing, something that really stands out to you that, that, that helps remind you why, why we do this kind of work and why it's important for there to be international solidarity in these moments. And if you don't mind, Michelle, I'd like to start with you. Tell us a little bit, you know, what's something that really stood out for you in your experience in Nicaragua? Thank you, Jose Luis, for that beautiful reflection on Honduras um, from 2009 all the way up to the reversal, hopefully, of the coup in 2021. 
Um, you know, I have just come back from Nicaragua, which witnessed a coup attempt in 2018. That was greatly shocking and also was a signal what was coming for many other countries in the region um, from Venezuela and beyond. So um, what I really appreciated about being in Nicaragua um, with the Asociación de los Trabajadores del Campo, the Rural Workers Association, is that I really saw that the Sandinista Popular Revolution was on firm footing. Um, and it is, it is now just part of the fabric of everyday life. And it's going to be very hard to reverse this country in which, as Che talks about, free and new men and women exist in the 21st century. One of the most beautiful things from my trip was I was alongside old militants from, from the Sandinistas who had established the Rural Workers Association and who had been part of that armed struggle and today are, you know, eager to pursue a path of peace and, and building their society. And they have that memory of like comrades lost in the 80s and just how hard it was during the neoliberal period. And today they are there still fighting, but fighting from the trench of education and fostering young militants. And, at, you know, Terry was in the room with me as we were hearing the vote counts um, at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in Managua. And just hearing that San Denismo had taken between 70% and 88% in every department, that those that's incontrovertible. You know, this revolution is on firm ground. There's a lot that we should be paying attention to that the Sandinistas are getting right. And um, I think as that after that election, you know, Nicaragua has begun their formal withdrawal from the OAS. I think we can see a lot of good things like that coming ahead. So I'm going to pause there and turn it over to um, the rest of our speakers. Raul, you're next. Tell us, what did you feel being in Venezuela? You've accompanied a lot of elections in Venezuela. Tell us, what, what set this one apart for you? Thank you, Jose Luis. Um, you know, Venezuela is always very interesting in terms of what you see and what you feel when you're on the ground in comparison to what you hear when you, when you live in Canada or at least, you know, outside of Venezuela. Uh, and most importantly is I've been going to Venezuela for probably the last 10 years around visiting social movements, accompanying the elections, and outside of... Uh, you know, a, a immensely democratic country and population. You see that people are involved in the democratic process right from the start. The, you know, they set up uh, simulation tables, you know, months before the electoral process. So people get familiar with the machines. People are, you know, walking around the cities uh, and the towns with their constitutions. And they're very, you know, they can e easily school you on any article of the constitution, whether it's from an electoral process or from, you know, a social program process. And I think that sort of bottom up, uh, you know, grassroots democratic process is so inspiring when you're in, in, in Venezuela and you see it, you know, from, from for example, we had a, the opportunity to just outside of Caracas to visit the great housing mission where you know the Bolivarian Revolution is helping communities to build their own homes that they get to own after, but you know they're they're building it from scratch. And when we were in the community, what we saw is the majority of the people who are leading this project, for example, building their own homes, are women. Women are in charge of the engineering. Women are in charge of the procurement. Women are in charge of the communication. And it's incredible to see how that that community empowerment from building your own home to defending 
the electoral process or, or the Bolivarian Revolution is an is an ongoing process in Venezuela. And no matter what the United States and Canada and sort of its international allies in the imperialist realm have tried to throw at the Bolivarian Revolution, whether it's you know an assassination attempt against Maduro, whether it's economic sanctions that have devastated the economy, that have resulted to the deaths of thousands of people, whether it's you know uh, actual infrastructure uh, terrorism, you know the opposition engaging in violence against you know peaceful uh, democratic process, the people of Venezuela continue to move forward on their path of you know a socialist Bolivarian vision for Venezuela even under so many attacks. And I think for that, it's, it's inspiring to see the people just continue to work for the electoral process. And Terry, tell us what you think. You're the superstar having been to all three countries going from Nicaragua to Venezuela to Honduras. I did Venezuela to Honduras and I'm exhausted from all this work. It's incredible that you've been able to accompany all three processes. But please tell us what, what stood out for you from any, any one of the three experiences. Well, thank you, Jose Luis. I have to say it's really wonderful to be um, sharing this program with um, all three of you today. I guess for me, having been on the road all month to witness all three elections, and let's not forget there were elect uh, legislative elections in um, Argentina on the 14th of November and also first round presidential elections in Chile on the 21st of November. The three that I went to presidential elections in Nicaragua, regional and municipal elections in Venezuela and presidential elections in Honduras. I think the overriding theme for me for the month, and I would also argue is a theme for the hemisphere post COVID is this need, desire, fight to preserve national sovereignty. No US interventionism in any form, whether that's boots on the ground, unilateral coercive measures, lawfare, whatever, however you want to frame it. There is a huge sentiment among people on the ground to preserve their sovereignty. And I think that has really led to the growth and success of social movements. I think all of us participating in this conversation today would support the idea that political parties, candidates need to come out of the social movements. That's where the strength is. So whether or not your party is formally holding office or not, your party is still in power on the ground, educating, recruiting, and building um, so that you're never off the playing field, so to speak. So that to me is the biggest thing I see people wanting for themselves and to build. I think that has definitively come out of in this, I mean, what many of us are describing is the second wave of the pink tide. I think we're seeing a unity among Latin America and Caribbean countries. I'd also go so far as to say the global South in general, but the lack of response by the global North towards the global South during the COVID-19 pandemic has created alliances among people, hu human, humanitarian alliances among people, not just economic, which has been forging because of economic sanctions, but the, the human connection that many of these countries, human and social connections are really strong right now. And I think that's really, really coming from some of the leadership here in Mexico, where I'm currently um, living. There's a, this vision that the president of Mexico has articulated beginning July 23rd of this year and has gone on to host the Venezuela Dialogue, 
reinitiated uh, the SELAC summits after a four-year pause. There's dialogue happening now that's really creating a moment in Latin America. And that specifically saw that in Nicaragua with the re-election of Daniel Ortega and the very strong national um, winds of the PESUV in Venezuela, where um, the majority of the states have, have PESUV governors. So, and then of course in Honduras, as you so beautifully put opening the program, Jose, you've seen the people create an opportunity for themselves now with the election of Xiomara Castro to really undo 12 years of a narco dictatorship of a severe neoliberal um, government and all backed by the United States. So there's some really wonderful, inspiring activity now that um, I believe has a real opportunity to, uh, to really shift the complexion of the Americas in, in the coming years. Thank, thank you, Terry. And I think just to build off on a little bit of what you said in terms of you know, the pink tide, the red wave that we're kind of seeing in Latin America, and maybe I'll start with Michelle, if you can give me your thoughts on this, is in all three countries where we observed elections recently, Honduras, Nicaragua, Venezuela, it's clear that the progressive forces defeated the reactionary and conservative forces in those countries. So beyond you know, what it says for the region, and what, if any, will this have in terms of implications for U.S. foreign policy in the region? You think it's going to change the way the U.S. U.S. imperialism is, is sort of behaving towards these countries, or you think it's just going to be status quo? I think that's a really good question for us to grapple with um, in the solidarity movement. I think the examples of Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela demonstrate how important it is to kind of hold the line of a revolution and and kind of earnestly deepen um, its footprint in all aspects of society because. That is really what has helped some of these projects incubate and have like a safe space to grow. Um, you know, in Bolivia, it's the social movements that helped um, return the mass to power. And so I think um, we have to think about the role that these that this troika plays in protecting um, forward movement for all of the social movements, um, as Terry took the time to mention. So I've been thinking about this. I've heard some some discussion that perhaps, you know, that the PESUV government will make some sort of compromise to lift the sanctions. Um, and, and you know, I'm thinking about the use of unilateral coercive measures. I don't think there's ever going to be a lifting of unilateral coercive measures. I think that these countries and these projects really need to adapt rapidly to what is a new future. Um, there is not going to be a reversal of these policies from Washington. Um, others might disagree with me, but I think as we saw, the Renaissance Act was, I think, put into effect even prior to Nicaragua's elections on November 7th. Um, and it doesn't matter. It literally does not matter what the social movements do, what the governments do. The U.S. has one has one mission, and that is to destroy these sovereign projects. And so I think um, I don't see that the U.S. is going to stop using the blunt force or the blunt weapon of, of sanctions. It's gotten them pretty far um, without having to get into overt um, ground warfare. 
Um, and this is just going to be the tool of the future to ensure the primacy of the dollar and to ensure U.S. dominance of the financial market. So I think in some ways we have to care less about what the U.S. might do and, and just earnestly build the project. And I think, you know, from my perspective, that's what they are doing in Nicaragua, which and I can, you know, I can also speak to that happening to a degree in Venezuela as well. I would say I think it's important to remember in this moment that was at one time called the pink tide that the U.S. was distracted. It was engaged in a lot of occupations and military efforts in other parts of the world. And it's now we've seen that with the withdrawal of Afghanistan, that it's turning its attention elsewhere. It's lost a lot of ground in the region to China. And that makes it nervous. U.S. imperialism is nervous. And so that kind of attention always puts people like us, people who believe in these revolutionary transformations, nervous because their attention on us means that they're more willing to engage in the kinds of regime change efforts that we're seeing in Venezuela. I mean, it's not a surprise that we saw the U.S. react so quickly to both the elections in Nicaragua and Venezuela, because in some ways those are the processes that are most advanced. Those are the ones that represent the, the point of the spear in the region. But I wouldn't stick to a pessimistic point of view, because I'm actually rather optimistic. Rather than a pink tie this time, I think what we're experiencing is a red wave. And what we're going to have is these processes further and further deepened and more and spread out. You know, there's there's opportunities for more victories of the left. And of course, it's not just electoral politics, right? It's also the advancing of social movements, the advancement of, of the trade union movement, the deeper integration that we're seeing through through these regional integration projects, the rejection of the OAS, these are really important qualitative advances in the region. And I think that we should really draw inspiration from, but it will require us to be continually mobilized because as much as precisely because there is more mobilization, more unity, more disappointment with the way that the world has treated the global South, that we're likely to see a greater reaction from the enemy, in this case, US imperialism. I love the word optimistic because I personally feel the same way you do, Jose Luis. I think we are, there is a specific moment right now happening throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. And I think that it is optimistic. And I will digress back to my prior comments where some of this unity or uh, an awareness on the ground among communities is humanitarian, is because of the almost complete neglect given Latin America and the Caribbean, and particularly many Caribbean nations, in the response to COVID-19. So what was built in the early 2000s and then kind of went quiet or out of power has really uh, re-blossomed in a, in a new moment. Also, I think most people who have spent any significant time and or permanently live outside of the United States really see the world already is multilateral in how it functions with the United States and its quote unquote international allies um, remaining, you know, holding on to this unilateral uh, paradigm. Most of the country, most of the world already is multilateral and really, really see that expanding through uh, the Global South, but Hugo Chavez had envisioned a South-to-South development in trade. That is a real thing. And that has been uh, fueled. It's, I mean, it's been a vision, you know, since 1999, but I believe it has been fueled and is growing because um, of nations looking for an alternative 
to the U.S. financial paradigm because of how many nations have been pushed out of the global markets due to unilateral coercive measures. So I think you could argue that this whole foreign policy, economic policy of the United States is creating the antithesis of what it was hoping to achieve. And it is optimistic. I like that. So we're going to switch gears now, and we're going to talk about each country. And my first question is for Michelle. So here in Honduras, we saw the election of Xiomara Castro. And to do so, she had to build a big tent coalition. And she brought in a lot of diverse actors, including some that aren't exactly on the ideologically same ground as her. And I'm specifically talking about Salvador Nasrallah, who actually served as her running mate. And he actually said in recent interviews that he considered people like Maduro and Ortega as dictators. And I mentioned that because, well, it kind of speaks to some of the some of the diverse points of view that in, in, exist here in the region, but also, you know, the fact that there are there are people who hold these views, these pro-imperialist views in the region itself. What would you say to that? What, how do those comments correlate to the reality you experience on the ground in both countries? So we'll start, uh, we'll start with you, Michelle, but Terry, I know you also probably have something to contribute here. Thank you, Jose Luis, for that question. I think that's really an important question for us to grapple with in the global north. Um, I think it is all too common to think of um, the Sandinista government as a dictatorship and not one sourced in popular power and one that is powered um, by everyday people. Um, and I think that is a tension that will need to be resolved as as these projects deepen in their revolution and as, as we see movement toward La Patria Grande. So this was my first time in Nicaragua, but I have been studying the country for several years and was really, again, it's just like as when I went to Venezuela for the first time, you know, you have, you can study a country so much, but then to see what it, what it means to make ordinary revolution in everyday life is just another thing. And I saw a country that was at peace. People were not worried. People, you could, you could, ex you could just take a deep breath and relax in Nicaragua. State services are provided for. The country is nearly over ninety-five percent electrified, approaching ninety percent um, access to potable water in the furthest and more most rural communities. There has just been so many advances that have occurred under this second. Sandinista government um, since 2006. And something that people often say in Nicaragua is, um, aunque te, te duela, aquí Daniel se queda. And that is just kind of their approach to their revolution. It's like, even if it hurts you, we're going to remain. And I think that it just speaks so much about the Sandinista revolution is that people realize that as a sovereign country, they have everything they need for their project within their country and that their people can provide everything for their own, for their own future and building the socialist path. And so while all this like right-wing media in Miami and even in Nicaragua's own press which is very you know very privatized the Chamorro press you know runs free they can say whatever they want but the proof is in in daily life for Nicaraguans and as we all saw from the election results 75% of those who came out to vote, voted for the Frente. Terry, so I was remembering my first day here in Honduras and we were having coffee. And one of the delegates who is a great activist, he's obviously in solidarity with Latin America, but even he had this erroneous idea. You know, he came to us and he said, oh, we know they weren't free and fair. And both of you and I were like, what? 
No, I think you're misinformed. It shows the, the, the level of propaganda when it comes to Nicaragua. So same question for, for, for you, Terry. Tell us, how do you respond to, to these kinds of accusations? How does that correlate to what you've seen on the ground, especially being able to compare your experience, say, Nicaragua and Honduras in terms of having free and fair elections? Well, it's fascinating, and it's, it's also much kind of to, uh, to have witnessed and absorbed. So regarding Nicaragua, I think that there's been so much external negative media towards the Ortega government that it's a very difficult narrative to get through. And this is why I feel, and I'm certain all, the re- all of you do as well, it is so important to go visit these countries that have these terrible Western media attacks against them because the reality is often completely antithetical to, to the media narrative. For Nicaragua, all you have to do, as Michelle said, is go and visit, see how peaceful it is, how stable it is, and the economic development in that country that is benefiting the majority of citizens, not any one specific demographic. We're talking infrastructure and institutional projects. And this is, to me, one of the clashes we're seeing play out now, particularly in the global South, Latin America and the Caribbean, these uh, forms of government and economic systems that are unilateral, neoliberal, pushing for 100% privatization of institutions and infrastructure versus those governments and economies that are developing countries that are benefiting the citizens first. That is a clash we're seeing play out. And those countries that are resisting neoliberalism, 100% privatization are in the crosshairs of the United States and its its allies. So Nicaragua has really pushed back against that. That country, it's really amazing, as Michelle mentioned, the projects and development in that country since 2007, since the second uh, Sandinista government came to power. The, the development is really, it's, it's exciting, it's empowering, it's, and it's quite beautiful to see that people in rural communities have paved roads through town. You do not have paved roads in rural communities in Honduras. People have electricity and running water in their homes. People have access to healthcare, can send their children to school. These are things that are extraordinarily valued. The other thing I will come back to specifically to Nicaragua, I would like to just refocus on this theme of national sovereignty. The Nicaraguans really, really believe in sovereignty. They have fought for it in a revolution to push the Somoza regime, US-backed Somoza regime out of their country. They came back to power after 16 years of neoliberalism. They understand national sovereignty. They, They value it and they will continue to preserve that. I think they are probably the strongest example of a people who understands the need to preserve national sovereignty and the ability to do it. These people are fighters. And I say that as far, you know, you know, politically they are, economically they are, and we all know that they're perfectly capable of pushing an empire out of their country. So they have, they're, they're very inspiring. For Venezuela, the economic development is happening in a much different way 
They have been under uh, sanctions since December of 2014 and increasingly more and more uh, a stranglehold, specifically uh, with the Trump administration uh, uh, August of 2017. The most inspiring thing for me in Venezuela is the Venezuelan people, given what they have survived during this these years of economic warfare, that they are still there, that they are still fighting, and they as well are fighting to preserve their national sovereignty and build a nation in their own vision. The number one consistent phrase I heard on the 21st of November in Venezuela, election day there, was sovereignty is not negotiable. Thank you, Terry. So I guess a little bit focused more on, on Nicaragua still. That's clearly, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the target of, of the United States in terms of destabilization. Uh, you know, countries that take on an independent path economically, politically, are quickly demonized in order to try to contain, you know, what the U.S. would consider sort of the spread of, of an alternative way of, of economic, uh, political organization. So around, maybe a question for Michelle around uh, Nicaragua. Uh, you know, before the results ever came in uh, for the elections, you know, the, the electoral process, the U.S. was already demonizing the election, saying that it was going to be, that it was fraudulent, that, you know, didn't, it wasn't going to reflect the will of the people. What would you, or, or what do you think people can do who, who live in the North in, in what we call, you know, the belly of the beast? What is, what can they do? What's the best method of, you know, supporting the people in the global south when they undertake independent projects, in order to provide spaces for these 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 projects to 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 germinate and to flourish, what would you what would you suggest for people who live in the in the belly of the beast? Raúl, that's a great question and um, something that I've been thinking about a lot, um, especially thinking about the pernicious nature of the bourgeois press. Um, in Nicaragua, has lost so much to this press apparatus that is that is led by the Chamorro family. And if you look back over the decades, the Chamorro family has played a role in every reactionary movement in Nicaragua um, over the past two, I mean, over the past century. And, you know, I think too about the role the press played, for example, in a country like Egypt, um, which, you know, it is, it was also bourgeois press and it it helped fuel a coup against Morsi and the subsequent like Rabia al-Adawiyah massacre, which um, was just a horrific massacre, which, you know, we have to really think about the role that the bourgeois press, press plays in feeding citizens of the global north complete fabrications about life in the global south. Um, and I, my recommendation is to get to just educate yourself, educate yourself so that you can intervene in those casual conversations that are happening in your friend groups, that are happening in your workplace, um, that strive to paint this popular project in Nicaragua as something demonic or something that that is anti-human when it is fundamentally so life-affirming. Um, and so I think just as we've seen the role of the press in perpetuating um, Zionist apartheid in Palestine, um, in in every other country, I mean, in the in the coup in Honduras, as we were just speaking, we have to really realize that the press is not our friend. We need to we need to divest from the this press apparatus. Um, and 
Nicaragua is a really easy country to travel to. There's many um, organizations now that are starting up um, delegations. So I really recommend that. There's no greater experience than seeing a project like this in person. Um, and it also will give you the energy and like the inspiration to continue your own social movement work um, in the North. I totally agree with Michelle's comments, but specifically regarding um, U.S. Um, interventionism in Nicaragua, not just physical military interventions, but economic and media and all these different forms. I personally do not believe it's going to work this time around. And I say that because of this sense of national sovereignty that exists in Nicaragua. I say it because the Nicaraguan people, as a nation of people, know how to fight. And also very specific to Nicaragua, and this is more to do with economic warfare, this is a nation that is 95% food sovereign. This is a nation that can feed itself, does not import its food. So they are not going to be starved out of their country, out of you know, their government, out of power. They also are, I believe, close to 74% renewable energy, with the exception of um, transportation. They can turn the lights on in their homes and their schools and their, and their public facilities with renewable energy. So again, they're not going to be able to be, you know, cut off or slow down their, uh, their country due to oil imports. Some of their transportation is going to be affected by that. But this form of warfare, this foreign policy of economic strangulation that the United States has is going gonna, is gonna to play out very, I believe, is going to play out very differently in Nicaragua than what we have seen specifically in Cuba and Venezuela, other nations on, in the world as well. But to, to the hemisphere of the Americas, specific to Cuba and Venezuela. It's gonna play out very, very differently in Nicaragua. And, um, and I think that's something that we need to watch. And as far as what we can do back home, we've got to push to get this Renaissance Act lifted. And um, that's gonna take a lot, of, a lot more organizing. There's a terrific group of people uh, formed with the Nicaragua Network out of AFGJ that worked very, very hard to prevent the legislation from getting signed in the first place. And now we're gonna have to you know, really work to lessen it and if not fully remove it. You know, I've been following covering, visiting Venezuela for a long time, but I hadn't had a chance to, to go in a long time until most recently to participate accompanying this election. And it's immediately obvious the effects of U.S. unilateral course of measures. You can tell that the, obviously the objective of this is collective punishment. This is a war against the people of Venezuela so that they suffer so much that they, they themselves try to, try to change the government. Obviously, we saw the results. We saw that the Venezuelan people continue to support their project. We saw that the opposition lost. And so, Raul, even with all these illegal and immoral sanctions, that, as we saw ourselves, that are really affecting the Venezuelan economy and the people and are responsible for the deaths of thousands of people, we should remember, we saw the return of the opposition in these elections. You know, they weren't able to win very many governorships, which was obviously the, the, the big items, the big contest in this election. And so, 
why does the Bolivarian project continue to win? What lessons can we learn from their victory? You know, what does it say about the opposition? Talk to us about what you saw and what you experienced in Venezuela. I think in terms of what it says about the opposition is that it's very clear that the opposition has a history and is rooted in a very anti-democratic process. So the, the opposition has historically ruled the country since the 50s in what was known as El Punto Fijo, a pact between you know, the, the elite parties. And, and they believe, and I believe it's still current today, their mindset is there's an arrogance. They believe that they are the sort of the owners and they should be the rightful rulers of Venezuela. So they don't have to put forward much of a project for the Venezuelan people. So their idea is that if they just run for elections, then they're just going to win because they're the rightful owners of, of the country historically. And I think that's what has changed. And that's what the, the Bolivarian revolution for the last 21 years has done is basically it has taken power from these elites who today, obviously, even though they participate in the elections, they still don't accept, you know, the, the, the electoral moral victory of, uh, the, you know, the Bolivarian project. So I think that arrogance of the of the Venezuelan opposition, where we saw that you know they, they don't have a project, and so they have very little to no support and legitimacy in the country. Obviously, their support comes externally from the U.S. and from international actors, but in their country, they have none. So they have you know resorted you know they'll kind of resort to whatever is possible in order to try to you know, win some some type of political power. We know it's not, they've tried it through violence. They've tried it through electoral process. But by and large, they know that they can't win through the electoral process. So they were, I think they were hoping in these elections that with the, you know, the almost the destruction of the Venezuelan economy, the impact that it's had to socially, politically, to the missions uh, in Venezuela, that just through that inertia that they, you know, there would be enough, you know, anti-Maduro or anti-Bolivarian support. And it was clear that, you know, just like the U.S. did, they don't have a good read of what, you know, the Bolivarian Revolution does for the people or what the Venezuelan, what Venezuelan people need. I think in terms of what it says about the Bolivarian project is, is, is very simple. You know, the, the Bolivarian project has really taken power, as I said earlier on, from, from the elites and transferred that, you know, to, to the people, to the campesinos, to the workers from you know, allowing them to, you know, build and own their own homes, to providing, uh, you know, healthcare, education, a lot of the social services which the country has historically, you know, suffered from has is now something that is accessible, obviously, with the sanctions has made it very difficult. And a lot of that has changed. But I think what it continues to tell you is that the, you know, the United States, and, and you know, countries like Canada, who continue to have a foreign policy, which is myopic, and it's based on colonialism, it's based on racism, it's based on an imperialist view that the people in the global south don't know what's good for them, and the governments in the north actually do know what's good for them, and if need be, they will impose that on the people in the global south. You know, people of Venezuelans, Venezuelans have showed that it doesn't matter what you throw at them, they're not going to kneel down and accept whatever is imposed upon them. And I think it shows a determination, a strength of the people that, you know, as I think it was Terry mentioned, that, that sovereignty is not negotiable. And though you base, you know, there are obviously people and many people in Venezuela and in different parts that may not be, you know, fully committed to the Bolivarian project. They may not even be supporters of Maduro, for example. But it's clear that, you know, they would have voted rather vote for you know, the PESUV or Maduro and the Bolivarian Revolution than any other political party in the country or coalition because they don't have anything to offer. And, you know, basically kneeling down 
and doing whatever is imposed on you from external, is it an option for Venezuelans? And I think that's what's kind of shown us uh, since I was there. Yeah, and I think one important point to, to pay attention to as well is that the opposition is notoriously divided. And in fact, if you look at the statements that the United States and Canada issued, you know, they use their usual boilerplate language, they weren't free and fair, but they have nothing to point to anymore. It's important to say that in this election in Venezuela, it was actually also accompanied by observers from the European Union. So that myth that they've constructed that Venezuela is a dictatorship is, is already starting to crumble, even in the eyes of people in imperialist countries. And so the, the divided opposition is also a really important factor in this. And so much so that, if, again, if you look at the language that the U.S. and Canada use in response, they're trying to blame Maduro for the opposition. The opposition does not need any help to continue to be divided. And that's because they have an, an incoherent strategy. They, they're not able to actually come, come together because they're not actually offered to anything other than get those other guys in power out of power because we deserve to be in power. That, that entitlement that exists amongst so much of the opposition. And one final thing I have to say is also, as usual, imperialism tends to underestimate the power of the revolutionary forces. They thought that after brutal sanctions, after coup attempts and coup plots in Venezuela, that the people would give in and just say, you know what, we'd rather get out of the situation by any means. If that means going back and betraying the revolution, well, well, of course they were mistaken. That is not happening. There is still a revolutionary subject in Venezuela that is the Venezuelan masses who will not let themselves be, be abused in this matter. I think that's a good point in terms of how they underestimate, you know, the processes in, in Latin America. Just an anecdote, I remember reading some transcript from the Canadian government in terms of, you know, reporting on what was happening in Venezuela to, I guess, Parliament or to the Standing Committee. And one of the things that they made clear that kind of showed their lack of understanding or at least ignorance of the situation in Venezuela was they were saying that, uh, you know, they expected that uh, when Guaido was, you know, proclaimed interim president that she, that would really consolidate everybody behind Guaido and that that would, you know, very shortly after that, Maduro would fall. So they were convinced, uh, at least from a Canadian perspective, and I'm sure the U.S. as well, that this was the end of the Bolivarian Revolution just because, you know, they had now a fictitious leader that was going to lead the opposition. And it just shows you how grossly they underestimate and how, in my opinion, is, you know, they're ignorant of the situation on the ground and they construct a myth around what's going on in countries like Nicaragua, like Venezuela, that it's a dictatorship, that nobody supports the government. And I think they start to believe that narrative, unfortunately. And so their policies continue to be sort of circular, trying to overthrow a government that really, in most cases, has quite a lot of support from the people on the ground. Raul, you and I were in uh, Venezuela in December of 2020 for the um, National Assembly elections there. And we had, I think it was the day, the Saturday before election day, we had a meeting with um, the majority opposition parties, one member from each. I think there were 14 people in the room with us that afternoon. And it was fascinating to hear what they had to say, because this is the opposition, which is the majority of the parties that participates in the Venezuelan electoral process. Their story is seldom to never articulated in the Western media. All we hear in the Western media is about the Guaido, Leopoldo Lopez faction of the Venezuelan opposition. And that is the faction of the wealthy business class that is backed by the United States. There are all these other opposition players who have continued to participate 
in the Venezuelan electoral process. And they opened that meeting by saying that, quote unquote, we believe the Venezuelan electoral process is free, fair, and absent of fraud. They were clear they have a different economic and political vision for the country, but believe in making change through the constitutional process, which includes participating in the in election. In, no, in uh, November of this year, last month, in part due to the initial success of the Venezuelan dialogue here in Mexico City, the entire Venezuelan opposition participated in the regional and municipal elections on November 21. That has not happened since 2017. So there is this shift, however slight, that is happening. And I will go back to, you know, the this theme of preserving national sovereignty. And Raul, you had mentioned that, you know, there is no, so the peso won so large in November in Venezuela, because the opposition does not offer any united, cohesive message or plan for Venezuelan as a nation of people. But I will also say they voted for the PESUV because the PESUV and its respective governments under Chavez and Maduro have kept the US military so far out of that country, have preserved the nation of Venezuela, and people really, really value that. Those people in Venezuela, I, I have to tell you, and I get very emotional when I talk about this, they have survived so much and are still standing as a nation. And that is because of them as a people. And they are voting to preserve that for themselves. And it's a, it's a really profound thing to witness. So it, it's, again, it's optimistic. I should also say, just in, in having been in three countries in November observing elections, the, the technical process of voting in Venezuela is like none other I have seen in the world, including the United States, how it's automated, it's easy to use, it's so easy to count the votes, fraud-free, you have election results within hours of polls closing. It's incomparable to anything else that I witnessed this month, including you know voting in my own country. That's a good point. We can never forget how technologically advanced, secure, and transparent the Bolivarian electoral process is. So maybe a question for Jose Luis, and this is around Honduras specifically. Uh, I guess in terms of what's changed in Honduras, because we know historically that you know the electoral system is 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 marred with fraud and corruption. We saw this in 2013 with uh, Zamara Castro lost, you know, had her election stolen from her. We saw it in 2017 when Juan Orlando was reelected. Again, it was plagued with irregularities, according to you know international observers like the OAS. So. What has changed in Honduras this time around that allowed the people to break through this institutional corruption and fraud that I'm sure is still there? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked this question. So in terms of the freer conditions that existed, we have to be clear that this was a product of struggle. This was a product of the movements and the Libre Party pushing to make sure that there were necessary reforms that needed to happen to reduce the possibility, not eliminate, but reduce the possibility of fraud. And there was definitely a lot of regularities on the day of the vote. And we're talking about 
naked vote buying, literally having people from representing the, you know, the National Party outside of polling centers, grabbing people by the arm, pulling them into their tent, offering them goods. You know, we're talking about working class, low income communities and be like, hey, if you vote for us, we're going to give you roofing materials so that when it rains, your house doesn't leak anymore or, or flooring materials so that you don't have dirt floors in your house. You know, that that can go a long way to maybe someone who's undecided succumbing to that kind of temptation or even offering cash and being like, here's some money. If you if you vote for us and we win, we'll give you this money. Or, you know, if, if you don't vote for us and you don't win that social program that you're enjoying, it's going to disappear. So, but here's the thing. When I arrived here in Honduras, I did as any good journalist does. And I just started talking to people and it was immediately evident that there was a mood for change. In fact, I kept telling people who were on the delegation with us that they reminded me a lot of Mexico in 2018. There comes a point where the masses or the working class where the oppressed can no longer take it. And no matter what you do with your fraudulent efforts, with your vote manipulation, with your threats of violence, they're not going to continue to support this regime. And that's what happened. That's what happened in Mexico 2018. That's what happened here in Honduras. The 12 years of National Party rule, the eight years of the Juan Orlando Hernandez regime were too much. They were too abusive. Like, the, the, the people said, we cannot stand with it. I talked to a number of people who said, I've been a National Party supporter my whole life. My family have been National Party supporters our whole lives. We're not going to vote for them this time around. And so that's, I think, what saw that wave of support for Xiomara and the Libre Party. And that was just so great that it didn't matter how much they tried to steal the vote. They probably did steal a bunch of the votes. And actually, we're seeing now that there's a lot of movements to try to rob Libre of a majority in the Congress. So they, you know, they're up to their own dirty tricks. But when it came to the presidential election, the mood was just too great. And that's what made it so that the, you know those that 5% of the vote that you usually can squeeze out and, and switch to your side wasn't enough. When you win by almost 20 points, doesn't matter what you do, that is too overwhelming for even the most fraudulent of activities to, to, to defeat it. And that speaks to, as I said at the very beginning of this program, the experience on the streets. No escuela como la escuela de la calle. There's no school like what you learn on the streets. The people have been on the streets battling. You know, there was the efforts of privatization, the abuses around COVID. You know, they promised they were going to build hospitals. They spent these millions of dollars and they did nothing. The people remember that. They know what it was like to face the fraud. You know, we worked with a lot of young people in, as part of the observation here in Honduras, people who were too young to really know what was going on during the coup. Pero son los hijos del golpe. You know, they're the children of the coup. They grew up neoliberal nightmare that sprung up in the wake of the coup. And they said, no, we're going to do our part as well. Terry, any, any thoughts? You know, I want to pick up on something um, that Jose Luis said um, and that I witnessed as well in Honduras on the 28th of November was seeing the... Um, the political bribing for votes by the National Party, offering food, you know, housing, you know, flooring for housing, roofs for housing, uh, food for your family. The irony of that is here you have a political party that supports privatization, that supports the neoliberal paradigm, understanding that people would potentially vote for you if you offered them things that better their daily life. So, the National Party is saying on election day, well, we'll give you all these things for your vote. Then you turn to countries like Nicaragua and Venezuela with governments and economies who understand it is the government's responsibility to deliver these products to people, to keep the entire nation, the entire population 
at a level of existence that is beneficial. And that includes food, housing, schools, electricity, running water, roofs on your houses. So the, the irony you know, of these political parties that support neoliberalism, understanding on election day and only on election day what is necessary to provide people in order for them to support you versus these long range governmental, political and economic projects that understand the need to deliver to the people on a fundamental level every day and are doing it. And that is one of the reasons why those governments consistently have received support from their people. Well, that's all we have for the program today. I wanna thank all of you for, for participating. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja, and the producer is Raul Burbano. And today we had two very special guests, Michelle Mujanatu and Terry Matson, who have been accompanying political processes in Latin America for a number of years. And I have to say, as a Latin American myself, I really appreciate that kind of solidarity. It really does matter. It really does make a difference. You know, that granito that arena, you know, putting your your contribution really does does matter. And I do appreciate that. And I appreciate all our listeners who joined us today on this program to hear and learn about what are things are happening, how the intersection of election and popular power and political struggle is happening. But I do wanna offer everybody final opportunity to close out the program and share one final word with everybody who's listening. Thank you, Jose Luis. I just wanna finish by saying that observing these processes makes me you know, understand more than ever the urgency of committing to political revolution in our in our countries of origin. As the processes started in Nicaragua in 79 and then in Venezuela, you know, of course, we saw the beginnings of that in the Caracas. So once the revolution is set in motion, it's very hard to turn it back. And once revolution finds a home in an individual, they're able to defend it during hard periods, as we saw when Cuba experienced a special period in the 90s. And when Nicaragua underwent the neoliberal period um, around that same time. Even today, you know, I have such a strong sense from Venezuelans about their commitment to their homeland that I don't have I don't doubt the future of the revolution because they understand themselves as protagonists in the process. And so they are going to safeguard the project in their hearts and also in their work until the revolution is on firmer ground. And I know it will get there. I think you know what's important is that. As long as we continue to depend on the mainstream media, our governments, usually neoliberal governments, to interpret uh, what's going on in Latin America and in the global south, we're going to continue to be misled and misinformed. And I think that's a travesty for the majority of the people living in the, in the global north. They don't really have a good sense of what's going on because of the massive misinformation. And Terry sort of mentioned it earlier on that, you know, when something gets repeated so often, there's so much misinformation, the lie becomes a truth, right? It's very hard to kind of break through that. And I think that's why it's really important for us in in the global north, at least, to develop some kind of, uh, you know, electoral observatory, for example. You know, it's very important for people in the north to go to the global south, especially during the electoral process, not so much to, uh, you know, accompany the electoral process. I mean, it's great, and in some some, um, cases it's needed, but more to learn and, and, and to exchange, right? To develop that exchange between the people on the, on the ground, whether it's through their electoral process or whatever the project, because I think that's one of the main things that we've lost, which is that articulation between social movements, between civil society of the North and the South, and we've left it to institutions, NGOs, I don't know what political parties to do that for us. And I think when people go down and or when people come up to the North 
and we interact, we exchange, we kind of start the dialogue, it really helps all of us learn what is really happening. And so, you know, I'm, I'm become a big advocate of developing a global uh, elections observatory where we can actually build on this, even though electoral processes are only, you know, they're, they're a point in time, they're not the whole and the most important aspect of any process by any means, but it's definitely important in order to give us, it gives us a window to unite and to articulate in a way that we don't always get to on a regular basis. I just want to add one quick comment, having been in three countries the month of November, watching three different countries vote and the political activities surrounding that. But in the countries I visited this month, it is so very clear that the populations understand U.S. foreign policy far better than those of us who are U.S. citizens of the United States. And part of that is due to the media narrative. Part of it is due to lack of leaving the country and visiting, spending time on the ground, and not just as a tourist, but as a visitor. But that understanding of U.S. foreign policy is what is going to help these nations evolve past it. They have all been victims of U.S. foreign policy for 100 years or more, and before that, British, and, the, and before that, Spanish imperialism. They understand what they're up against, and they are building social and political and economic processes to move beyond it. And I believe they will be successful because of how profoundly they understand U.S. imperialism and not just political, military, but economic as well.